The global campaign to de-dollarize, to challenge the hegemony of the US dollar, continues to pick up momentum. Pretty much every week we see a new development in a certain region of the world, whether it's China, Russia, Iran, India. And today I'll be talking about Latin America and its growing campaign to create a new currency. This is an issue that I've reported on a lot here, and it's an issue that we've seen a very significant historic development emerge in, and that is that Brazil and Argentina have publicly announced that they are going to be planning a new currency for trade in Latin America. It is going to be called the Sur, which means South in Spanish, and today is January 23rd. Tomorrow, January 24th, is the beginning of the International Summit of the Community of Latin American and Caribbean States, C-E-L-A-C, CELAC. They're meeting in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and in that meeting, they're going to be discussing plans to move forward to start creating this pan-Latin American currency. This is an absolutely historic development that directly challenges the hegemony of the US dollar, which is the global reserve currency, which is still held in the global reserves of about 60% of central banks around the world. And the US dollar is still involved in around 80% of international trade, although that figure is declining and declining more and more by the year. As always in my discussion today, I have an article in the description below over at geopoliticaleconomy.com, which has a link to all of the sources that I'll be discussing today so people can read, read and find out more information for themselves. Now, I just want to mention that this is something that I've been reporting on for years now. And President Lula, who just entered again in Brazil, he's now in his third term as president, he made a speech when he was running for president in May of 2022, in which he said that if he becomes president, that he had plans to create a new currency for Latin America to be freed of the dependency on the US dollar. That's the language that he used. I reported on it at the time. And in that speech, Lula suggested that this currency would not be like the Euro, not be like the Eurozone, because that is a currency that all countries, all member states in the EU use for their domestic currency as well. Lula said that instead, this currency, the Sur, would be used in order to do trade. It would be used more as a unit of account, so countries can do trade between each other, and they can still maintain their domestic sovereign monetary policy, which is important. If a country you know, is going through a depression and the, and the government wants to run a deficit to help stimulate the economy, then they can do that. Unlike in the European Union, where countries like Greece, which are stuck using the euro, and they can't run significant government deficits, which means they can't you know, fund social programs and infrastructure projects, they're basically permanently trapped in austerity, unlike Germany, which basically controls the euro with the European Central Bank being in Germany, being largely dominated by Germany, being a significant economic power, the de facto leader of the EU. So according to Lula, when he made those comments in May, the plan is not to copy the European Union, it's to try a different model. And this model is actually much more similar to the, the model that had been uh, proposed by the, the famous um, Brit British economist, John Maynard Keynes, 
back at the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944, he proposed the creation of something called the Bancor, which was basically a way of an international unit of account so countries could do trade with each other. So not, not one country would have the exorbitant privilege of having the currency that every country on earth pretty much needs in order to do trade or buy imports, right? So what happened in the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944 is that the US dollar was made the global reserve currency, but there were other proposals. And this proposal in Latin America is something very similar to what Keynes had proposed. I did a separate video and podcast about this several weeks ago titled Latin America's plan to challenge US dollar with new currency and regional financial architecture. I will link to that in the description below. It talks about a blueprint that was written by an Ecuadorian economist and leftist presidential candidate, Andres Arauz. He came close to winning the 2021 presidential election. And he wrote this blueprint for Lula after Lula won the October 2022 presidential election in Brazil. And in this blueprint, uh, Andres Arauz, the Ecuadorian economist, he wrote that the goal of this new currency, the Sur, is to, quote, harmonize the payment systems of the countries in Latin America in order to, quote, carry out interbank transfers to any bank inside of the region in real time and from a cell phone. And Andres Arauz also called for challenging the U.S.-dominated International Monetary Fund, which has imposed neoliberal structural adjustment policies on countries in Latin America for many decades, trapping them in debt, like Argentina. Argentina is a country that has been trapped in billions of dollars of odious debt, not just now where it has $44 billion owed to the IMF, but really for 200 years, owed first to the British Empire and now to the US and IMF. By the way, I should also point out that Lula da Silva, back when he was president in his first two terms as in Brazil, he was one of the co-founders of the BRICS block, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. It was originally BRIC without South Africa and then South Africa joined. And Lula was one of the masterminds who helped create that, that plan. And now Argentina is also trying to join BRICS. Now it's gonna be expanded known as BRICS Plus. Argentina has already applied to join BRICS and China invited Argentina to attend the 2022 BRIC summits as an observer. So we're now seeing not only the integration of Latin America with the creation of a new currency, but also the integration of the global South with more countries in Latin America trying to join the BRICS plus bloc. Iran has applied to join and other countries have expressed interest, including Algeria and even Turkey, a member of NATO, formerly known as Turkey, even Saudi Arabia and Egypt. So Latin America is really right in the heart of this attempt to build a multipolar world. And the attempt by Brazil and Argentina and other countries in the region to create a Latin American currency is a huge development in this push toward not only a multipolar world politically, but a multipolar world economically and financially. Now, I mentioned that we've known for months now that Lula was planning this currency, but he didn't mention it after that May rally. Well, now the, the Argentine government has publicly confirmed it, and it was reported in the Financial Times, a mainstream newspaper. And the article title is Brazil and Argentina to start preparations for a common currency. And they add that other Latin American nations will be invited to join the plan. 
This was published on January 22nd. And the article in Financial Times notes that this currency, the Sur, quote, could boost regional trade and reduce reliance on the US dollar, officials told the Financial Times. And it would, at least at first, run in parallel with the Brazilian real and the Argentine peso. So like I said, this is not the same model as the European Union, which is a completely neoliberal model that, that prevents countries from having their own monetary sovereignty. And the economic minister of Argentina, Sergio Massa, told the Financial Times, quote, there will be a decision to start studying the parameters needed for a common currency, which includes everything from fiscal issues to the size of the economy and the role of central banks. It would be a study of, mecha of mechanisms for trade integration. Although he did caution, he said, I don't want to create false expectations. It's the first step on a long road which Latin America must travel. And then the initiative would be offered to other nations in Latin America. And then Sergio Massa, the Argentine economic minister, said, quote, it is Argentina and Brazil inviting the rest of the region. So it's not going to happen overnight. We all knew that these things are very complicated, but this is the beginning of a process that's going to pick up momentum. And I've talked about that a lot in my analysis here of attempts to de-dollarize the Chinese central bank, uh, not no longer buying, doing net purchases of U.S. Treasury securities and instead investing in gold and its reserves or the Russian central bank buying lots of gold. These are slow processes. They don't happen overnight, but they're processes that are continuing to pick up steam. They're gaining momentum. They're snowballing. And not in one year, not in two years, not even in five years, but in 10, 20, 30 years, we're going to see massive shifts in the global economy, the financial architecture, and therefore geopolitics. Later on in this article at the Financial Times, they interviewed Alfredo Serrano, who is a very good sp uh, Spanish economist, anti-neoliberal heterodox economist, and he helps run a think tank. It's based in Argentina called CELAG, which is the Latin American Center for the Studies of Geopolitics. And he explained he's very much involved in, in this research and in this milieu in Argentina and these discussions. And he explained the, the idea behind the creation of a new currency. He said, quote, the monetary and foreign exchange mechanisms are crucial. There are possibilities today in Latin America, given its strong economies, to find instruments which substitute dependence on the dollar. That will be a very important step forward. Now, what he was hinting at here is that for the first time in history, the sixth most populist, country, populist countries in Latin America all have left-wing governments. That includes Brazil, Mexico, Argentina, Colombia, uh, Venezuela, well, and until recently, Peru. And these left-wing governments are now collaborating more and more economically because they all understand that the U.S. sanctions, the illegal unilateral U.S. sanctions on Venezuela and Cuba and Nicaragua could very well be expanded to other countries like, say, Bolivia, like, say, even potentially Colombia. So, in fact, U.S., uh, the U.S. government has already threatened sanctions on Colombia just a few weeks after the new left-wing president, the first ever left-wing president of Colombia, Gustavo Petro, entered office. The U.S. government threatened sanctions because he reopened the border with Venezuela 
and was going to allow flights from the, the Venezuelan state-owned airline, Combiasa. So the U.S. threatened sanctions immediately. So what this means that countries in the region understand that if they want to be able to maintain their own sovereign economic and political policies, they have to be able to hold on to their reserves in a way that will prevent the United States from being able to simply grab them. Like the United States and Europe stole $300 billion worth of the Russian central bank's reserves. Like the United States and European countries stole billions of dollars belonging to Venezuela, including the Bank of England stealing over a billion dollars worth of Venezuela's gold held by the central bank. That's property of the Venezuelan people. The U.S. also froze, that is, stole the Iranian central bank's assets, the, Af the Afghan central bank's foreign reserves. So countries across Latin America understand the importance of diversifying their foreign exchange reserves and the importance of finding new ways to trade because right now, most of the time countries in Latin America are trading, they're doing it in dollars, which only weakens their currency against the US dollar and helps the United States maintain the hegemony of the US dollar. This is why the United States can maintain over decades a massive current account deficit. That means that it, it, it imports way more than it exports. And if you look at a map of the countries around the world based on their current account surpluses, you can see how extreme the U.S. trade deficit is compared to the rest of the world. I mean, it's insane how much the U.S. can simply import and import and import, and then its, its population can benefit from cheap consumer goods, and its corporations can benefit from cheap capital goods and importing commodities. And at the same time, the reason that the U.S. currency doesn't devalue like other countries that maintain current account deficits is because the U.S. dollar is the global reserve currency and there's so much international demand for it. So this is the free lunch that Professor Michael Hudson has talked about a lot. Economist Michael Hudson, as he spelled out in his book, Super Imperialism. The U.S. can just import and import and import and constantly run military deficits because the U.S. government is not running these massive deficits in order to fund social programs. There's no universal health care. Education is insanely expensive. It's doing that money goes to fund its military deficit and then quantitative easing, which is just basically pouring money into the coffers of rich people and fueling asset price inflation, this massive asset price bubble. So rich investors, so big hedge funds and asset managers, they all profit from this massive deficit, whereas actually in the United States, wages, real wages for workers have been stagnant since the 1970s, despite the fact that productivity, productivity has massively increased. So when people tell you that US dollar hegemony doesn't really matter, just look at that graph, this map, look at that map showing the countries around the world that maintain current account deficits. And then we see that China and Russia maintain massive current account surpluses because they export tons along with other major commodities producers, you know, Algeria, uh, Saudi Arabia, Germany, which is a major industrial power. It's a rare exception compared to the financialized neoliberal economy of the U.S., although the German economy is also becoming increasingly neoliberal. This is why France's finance minister complained back in the 1960s that the United States had an exorbitant privilege, he said, because the dollar is the global reserve currency and the U.S. is the only country around the world that can print dollars. And that means that the U.S. can maintain this massive uh, current account deficit 
that it uses to fund its global empire. That's how the U.S. maintains 800 foreign military bases. No other country in history has been able to do that. And the U.S. has largely because of the power of the dollar. But that is in crisis. That is declining. Now, I also mentioned all of that because it's important to push back against people who often know very little about international economics, who claim that it's a crazy conspiracy theory to objectively correctly point out that one of the main reasons for the NATO war in, in Libya to destroy Libya and overthrow its leader, Muammar Gaddafi, was because Gaddafi was trying to create a pan-African currency that would challenge the CFA franc, France's colonial currency, or even, for instance, Saddam Hussein in Iraq. One of the reasons for the Iraq war was Saddam Hussein was trying to challenge the petrodollar and sell oil in other currencies. And also at the same time, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela was considering doing it. Iran was considering doing it. Now, those are objective historical facts, but a lot of people say that's crazy conspiracy theory. I mean, briefly, because it's so similar to what we're talking about now, and because every time I talk about these issues, people joke about how, you know, Lula needs to be careful. The U.S. is going to organize a coup against him. Well, the U.S. already did that two times. There was a parliamentary coup backed by the U.S., against Lula's successor from the left-wing workers' party in Brazil, Dilma Rousseff, in 2016. She was overthrown on bogus charges. And then in 2018, Lula da Silva was imprisoned on fake charges in the lead-up to the 2018 election. And that is why the far-right president, Jair Bolsonaro, came to power. It's because the most popular candidate, Lula, who was leading over Bolsonaro by double digits in all the polls, that's why Lula was imprisoned on fake charges. That's why the UN Human Rights Committee said that his civil and political rights were violated in this bogus case against him. And that's why Brazil's Supreme Court dropped all of those past charges against Lula, clearing his record. And after that coup, the 2016 coup and the 2018 coup, backed by the United States in the Justice Department, first by the Obama administration, then by the Trump administration, after those coups, helped install Bolsonaro in Brazil. Bolsonaro went to Virginia and he visited CIA headquarters. So along with Sergio Moro, the judge who oversaw so-called Operation Car Wash and the imprisonment of Lula and the impeachment of Dilma, he also became Bolsonaro's justice minister and he visited CIA headquarters in Virginia. But aside from that, I, I want to point out that, you know, people joke about a coup against Lula. Well, it is an instructive case to study what happened in Libya, and it's not a crazy conspiracy theory. We have documents, thanks to WikiLeaks, that prove it. This is one of the reasons why Julian Assange, the world's most famous journalist, is rotting in a British prison and the U.S. is trying to throw him in a U.S. prison for the rest of his life. This is part of the Hillary Clinton email archive published by WikiLeaks, and this is an email titled, France's client in Gaddafi's gold. It was written by Sidney Blumenthal, one of the main, you know, uh, war criminals complicit in the NATO war on Libya and in other horrific crimes. And in 2011, he sent an email to Hillary Clinton back when Hillary Clinton was secretary of state under President Obama. And Sidney Blumenthal was one of her top aides. And this is a confidential email. And in this, in April 2011, during NATO's war against Libya, he talked about the economic war that the West was waging against Libya by freezing its foreign bank accounts, 
which is exactly what the U.S. also did to Iran, Afghanistan, Venezuela, and Russia. And here is the really important part. This is a bombshell email, again, sent to Hillary Clinton by her top aide, Sidney Blumenthal. He said, quote, Gaddafi's government holds 143 tons of gold and a similar amount in silver. This gold was accumulated prior to the current rebellion and was intended to be used to establish a pan-African currency based on the Libyan golden dinar. The plan was designed to provide the Francophone African countries with an alternative to the French franc, the CFA. And this is huge. For people. I mean, what is the CFA franc? This is a way in which the French Empire can still basically maintain control over its former colonies in Western Africa. There are multiple countries in Africa that do not have sovereign monetary policy because their currency, the CFA franc, is basically controlled by France because it's one, it's controlled by the French central bank and it's pegged to the euro, which means they can't implement their own sovereign monetary policy. And furthermore, they, these countries in, in Western Africa, they're forced to hold half of their central bank's foreign exchange reserves in Paris, in France. And France claimed that it was going to change that policy, but they really haven't. So this is a colonial way in which France still, the French Empire, which is still a real, I mean, it still is a force. The French Empire was not completely destroyed. It still maintains economic control over a significant part of Western Africa. And Muammar Gaddafi, as a Pan-Africanist, was trying to create a new currency for trade in, in Africa, just like now Brazil and Argentina are trying to create a new currency for Latin America, or like Hugo Chavez in Venezuela tr helped to create a currency in Latin America called the Sucre that was part of the Bolivarian Alliance, the economic alliance of leftist governments in Latin America and the Caribbean. And that's why the U.S. government one of the reasons, of course, among other reasons, that the U.S. government has tried so desperately to destroy the Alba, the Bolivarian Alliance, with the internal coup in Ecuador by Lenny Moreno, a U.S. asset, who withdrew Ecuador from the Alba. That's why after the U.S.-backed coup in Bolivia in 2019, Bolivia's coup regime withdrew from the Alba. I mean, the U.S. has been desperately trying to sabotage all these institutions of regional integration in Latin America, especially the economic institutions like the Bolivarian Alliance and its currency, the Sucre. So here we have smoking gun evidence from Hillary Clinton's top advisor, Sidney Blumenthal, when she was secretary of state. And he spells out very clearly, he writes in this email, I'm reading, quote, French intelligence officers discovered this plan shortly after the current rebellion began, and this was one of the factors that influenced President Nicolas Sarkozy, the French president at the time, his decision to commit France to the attack on Libya. According to these individuals, Sarkozy's plans are driven by the following issues, and they spell out so clearly why French imperialism, along with US imperialism and Canada and NATO, other members of NATO, Norway, why they joined in this war that destroyed Libya. One, a desire to gain a greater share of Libya's oil production, Libya being one of the world's major oil producers, at least it was. Two, or B, increase French influence in North Africa. C, improve Sarkozy's internal position in France. D, 
provide the French military with an opportunity to reassert its position in the world, and E, address the concern of Sarkozy's advisors over Gaddafi's long-term plans to supplant France as the dominant power in Francophone Africa. This is a smoking gun piece of evidence showing the main reasons why France joined in with NATO's war to destroy Libya. And immediately after what happened, well, here's an article in The Guardian, the mainstream British newspaper in September 2011, right after Gaddafi was killed, his government was overthrown, the Libyan state was destroyed. And it's titled, The Race is On for Libya's Oil, with Britain and France both staking a claim. And it says very clearly, quote, the starting pistol has been fired on bids by British and other Western powers to secure a slice of the oil prize in Libya when France said it was fair and logical for its companies to benefit. So there you go. I mean, I'm not saying this is the only reason why that NATO destroyed Libya and, over and killed uh, Muammar Gaddafi, but it's certainly a significant reason. And this is why Hillary Clinton, as Secretary of State, was so happy when Gaddafi was killed that when she heard the news live on TV, she said, we came, we saw he died, gloating over the murder of a foreign leader, a sovereign head of state of a foreign country. And this war was not new. The United States had been backing regime change operations to try to overthrow Gaddafi for decades. In 1986, the Ronald Reagan administration bombed Libya. They even killed Gaddafi's daughter, bombing his house. Under Gaddafi, Libya had been a significant supporter of national liberation struggles in the global south against imperialism, always supporting the Palestinian struggle against apartheid Israel, even supporting the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. And in fact, during the NATO war to destroy Libya in 2011, Nicaragua's Sandinista government actually represented Libya at the United Nations in an act of international solidarity. Gaddafi had always supported anti-imperialist struggles around the world, even in Ireland the national liberation struggle of the Irish Republicans against British imperialism, British colonialism. And I mean, there's never one reason, one single reason for any of these wars. It's never just about a pipeline. It's never just about currencies and de-dollarization, but those are significant factors in all of these conflicts. And we have to consider all of them along with, you know, Libya's foreign policy and its economic policy and all of these things. And what, what happened, by the way? What are the consequences? Well, still today, Ever since 2011, Libya has had open-air slave markets. It's a failed state. It's still in a, in a situation of civil war internally, funded by these foreign imperialist powers. And literally, sub-Saharan African migrants and refugees are sold in open-air slave markets, like it's the 17th century and European colonialists are once again selling Africans as slaves. I mean, this is what NATO brought to Libya. Libya had been the most prosperous country in Africa. It had the highest standards of living in Africa. It had free healthcare, free education, government programs to provide people with housing and jobs. And this is what the situation is now, a complete failed state. So there are very real consequences here. These are not conspiracy theories, even in the case of Iraq. I mean, Saddam Hussein was certainly not, you know, the same, he was not an anti-imperialist hero, but I mean, he certainly had an independent policy and Iraq was punished for having this independent policy. And Iraq still suffers today, the people of Iraq. 
There was a really interesting book written by a, an Indian diplomat, a prominent Indian diplomat, who was India's ambassador to Iraq. His name is Ranjit Singh Kalha. And this is an article in the Indian media outlet, the, the Economic Times. Saddam made two strategic mistakes to invite U.S. RAF. And this is based on this book written by the Indian diplomat who served as India's ambassador to Iraq. And I'm just going to summarize the main points here. He said that the first mistake Saddam made was when he decided in 2000 to move away from using U.S. dollars as currency for oil exports. Saddam also converted Iraq's 10 billion U.S. dollars of reserves from U.S. dollars to euros. It represented for the United States a direct challenge to the use of the dollar as a currency for transactions. Iran followed Saddam's move and Venezuela started initiating barter deals outside the dollar system. And this Indian diplomat wrote, if most other OPEC countries followed the Iraqi and Iranian example, the stability of the U.S. dollar would be at stake. And he said Saddam's second strategic mistake was when he decided to start giving oil contracts to non-U.S. oil companies. This was too much for the U.S., the Indian diplomat wrote saying that Washington had to challenge the country that was sitting on the world's second largest reserves of oil. And what's the country with the largest reserves of oil? Of course, that's Venezuela. And this was confirmed even in 2000 by U.S. state propaganda, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. This is a U.S. government propaganda media outlet that was founded by the CIA, originally named Radio Liberation from Bolshevism. And they published an article in November 2000 titled Iraq, Baghdad moves to Euro. And it's just blatant propaganda. They say Iraq is going ahead with its plans to stop using the U.S. dollar in its oil business. In spite of warnings, the move makes no financial sense. Clearly trying to cope here. They're obviously, you know, this is angering them. They're saying this is a stupid move that makes no sense, which is why you shouldn't do it. But even though it makes no sense, if you do it, we're going to have to punish you, Saddam. And you, again, this is U.S. state media. They say, with Iraq now set to begin oil transactions in euros as early as next week, President Saddam Hussein has clearly made up his mind that banning the dollar is worth flying in the face of financial logic. Again, they're really trying to convince him here. This is illogical. And, and then they quote this, uh, this Middle East expert, Pierre Chamas, who, who said that it made no sense but he said Saddam may feel the strategy is worth the price because it allows him to draw a clear line between what Iraq sees as two camps in world opinion regarding UN sanctions. One camp led by the US and Britain, a country also outside the Eurozone, wants to maintain strict trade sanctions on Iraq until Baghdad proves it has no more weapons of mass destruction. Keep in mind here, again, this is US state media propaganda. Those are the countries that invaded Iraq, the U.S. and Britain. The other camp, back when Europe actually had a spine and was willing to sometimes challenge U.S. hegemony. The other camp, I'm reading here from Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, quote, The other camp, led by Euro user France, along with Russia and China, favor easing the sanctions on humanitarian grounds while still pursuing disarmament. So they didn't want 
the aggressive U.S.-led sanctions on Iraq that led to hundreds of thousands of deaths in Iraq, including hundreds of thousands of children in Iraq dying. And the, the U.N. humanitarian coordinator for Iraq, he protested and he actually quit in protest, saying that they were genocidal sanctions. And Radio Free Europe pointed out that, and it appears that Iraq wants to encourage ties with states like France and Italy, which it sees as sympathetic by embracing the euro. Iraq is dusting off a strategy which another state hit by U.S. sanctions, Iran, discussed as recently as last year, 1999, that is. In Iran, a presidential advisor uh, pr proposed a switch to the euro last year. And then this, this expert quoted by the U.S. state media propaganda said, Shama says the idea of switching to the euro has appeal to Iran and Iraq because they feel if several major oil producers did it, they could create a stampede from the dollar, which would weaken Washington. He says another possible candidate for a changeover if the euro were strong might be Venezuela, whose relations with Washington have turned rocky as President Hugo Chavez has stressed ties with Cuba's Fidel Castro. And this is from back in 2000. And everything that we've seen mentioned in this article happened. So again, I'm not saying that the only reason for the invasion of Iraq was because Saddam was trying to challenge the petrodollar. It was because of his independent foreign policy, him challenging the Persian Gulf monarchies, including Saudi Arabia's hegemony, including Kuwait. It was because of a variety of factors, along with the variety of factors against Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. There's never just one factor, but you can bet these countries that want to have independent monetary policy to challenge the hegemony of the U.S. dollar. That is a significant reason for U.S. wars against them and regime change operations against them. It's what Hugo Chavez did in Venezuela with the creation of the Sucre. It's what Venezuela has continued trying to do. It's now what Brazil and Argentina are doing. And this is why Argentina's president, Alberto Fernandez, visited uh, Beijing and Moscow in February of 2022. Argentina joined China's Belt and Road Initiative and Argentina's president, Alberto Fernandez, who's, you know, he's a liberal, maybe centrist, kind of left-leaning centrist, but he's not a revolutionary. He's not radical. Even he told Russia, he said, we are trying to find alternatives to Washington's hegemony, Washington's dominance. And countries around the world are doing the exact same thing because the United States has weaponized its currency. It's weaponized the international financial system in countries, not just revolutionary countries like, you know, Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, China, but even countries that have more moderate governments, even former U.S. allies like Saudi Arabia, uh, Egypt, Turkey, which is a member of NATO, even they are trying to maintain more of an independent economic and monetary policy. So the world is shifting pretty drastically. It's happening. And that's why I report on this constantly, to understand it. And that's why, if you want to support this work I do, you can go to geopoliticaleconomy.com slash support, or you can become a patron over at patreon.com slash geopoliticaleconomy. Any support you can provide goes a long way. We have no big sponsors, no institutional support here. All of our work is sustained by small donors, people like you, viewers and listeners. So I want to thank you. I'm Ben Norton for Geopolitical Economy Report, and I'll see you all next time.